Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition, and I am happy to introduce Chuck Yates, uh, here to talk about oil and energy policy, Joe Biden's uh, new changes to those, what those mean. And uh, Chuck, first off, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I ran a private equity oil and gas fund for about 20 years, got booted in April of 2020. I, I like to say it was my fault. Oil went to minus 37. And uh, <laughs> hey, it did make the Wall Street Journal, though, when I got fired. So I've got that going for me. Um, and since that time, I've been gainfully unemployed, uh, jokingly calling myself the Oprah of the oil and gas business. I do two podcasts a week, the aptly named Chuck Yates Needs a Job, and then the BDE Show, which is a weekly summary of all things going on in the energy business. So uh, Chuck Yates Needs a Job. And uh, so if you happen to be listening and you want Chuck Yates uh, to, to work for you, uh, Chuck, how do they reach out to you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Nimble Fatty. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Instagram's Nimble Fatty as well. I will warn folks, if you want me to work for you, I have figured out I'm the fundamentally laziest person on the planet. So take that disclaimer with it. Well, there, talk about honesty and advertising. Maybe a little too honest, Chuck. Maybe just a tiny bit too honest, but that's <laughs> that's commendable. The, uh, I told my parents the other day I was going to move back in with them before I get another job because working just sucks. Let's cut <laughs> straight to the chase about it. <laughs> you know, my father said, uh, you know what the difference This uh, really true. He said, you know what the difference is between um, uh, humans and animals? And I said, no. He says, um, animals don't let their kids back into the nest once they've kicked them out. <laughs> <laughs> and and since, since I was at the moment living with my father <laughs> and shortly thereafter my sister started living with my father when i moved out um i figured the man knew what he was talking about still does yeah. so yeah there you go <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the oldest of four boys and when i tried to come home uh summer after freshman year at college dad said no freaking way love you come out to eat dinner every night but no you're not living in my house anymore actually so. it worked out well for everybody it was it was it was good you know while while it was necessary right and that when it wasn't necessary it was fine but yeah no i hear you and um all right chuck so we're talking about um we were talking i was talking with sarah stockner who's running for texas railroad commission about uh, the um biden policy changes in um oil and gas exploration and extraction and um, and, you know, she covered that a little bit and said, you know, who you should talk to is Chuck Yates, because he knows he knows much more about this uh, in, in detail. So I am here to tell to ask you, you know, what is it that um, what do you see out of Biden's new policies? It's kind of being rolled out as sort of, well, we're, we're now we're going to expand. We're going to get more production because we need more domestic production. On the other hand, it's going to be more expensive and it still looks like it's fairly restricted um, as compared to you know, two years ago. Well, you just did a much better job of articulating a policy than I think the Biden administration has done. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I always hate when guests come on and they don't disclose their political leanings. So I think in right. fairness, let me uh, do that. If you knew me in high school and college, you probably said I was a right wing Republican and that was probably fair. I think over time I've morphed into a bleeding heart liberal that's just terrified of the government. So very much kind of libertarian leadings. Um, let me do one thing. This is going to take us a little bit off the track, but I sure. think it's helpful to put some framework on. If you look back at oil and gas extraction and you go back to 2000, we have George Bush as president and let's not get into heavy duty debate on politics, but you could say one of our more conservative presidents we've ever right. had. Natural gas prices go really high. So what does the industry do because nothing cures high natural gas prices like high natural gas prices? We unleash technology, horizontal drilling, fracking, and basically we create a lot more natural gas. That's how markets work. And the Bush administration policy on that was pretty simple. We're the federal government. We're not going to do anything about it. We're going to let the states regulate it. Texas, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, you guys deal with this. EPA stand down, right? As you would think a conservative Republican would handle things. What was interesting is when 
2008 rolls around and we have Obama as president, who, again, let's not get into politics too deep, but you could say one of our more liberal presidents that we've ever had. The policy, believe it or not, stayed the same because at the end of the day, maybe the Obama administration, EPA was slightly tougher on oil and gas folks, but for the most part, they left it to the states as well. And why they did is because oil and gas accounted for 15% of the S&P 500, lots of jobs, lots of union jobs. And so you had both ends of the spectrum saying, states, you deal with this, us at the federal government aren't gonna touch it. Well, what happened is product prices crashed in uh, Thanksgiving of 2014. Some reporter quoted me this week as saying, normally on Thanksgiving day, I'm face down in pumpkin pie because my Dallas Cowboys lost. (laughs) (laughs) 2014, OPEC not, cutting oil production, causing oil prices to drop $15 in one day, I'm face down. But when you had that happen, basically energy, oil and gas drifted to a much smaller percent of the S&P 500. We lost a ton of money in the shale revolution. There was a lot of external capital that came in. The Deloitte and Touche estimate is that $500 billion was incinerated. So we basically had the red problem in that we lost a lot of money. We were unimportant to any sort of index, meaning if you're a a pension fund manager of some sort, you could ignore energy if you want. And then lo and behold, the green problem, i.e. the environmentalist uh, movement, their attacks on oil and gas, were able to take over because we were no longer important. And so I kind of just give you too much, more than you wanted to hear, but that kind of frames up how we got to where we are right now. So starting with kind of post-COVID, there's no external capital available for oil and gas, and that was of our own doing. That was the red problem. We lost money. And so now that you've had quarantines over, demand for oil and gas has gone back up. You've seen product prices rise. Now we're having the Biden problem because at the end of the day, if you want to bring prices down, you got to add more supply. And the problem, I think, to kind of summarize Biden, and then I'll we can get into specifics, but to summarize Biden is you just don't know where the guy stands. And if you think about it in life, in investing, uncertainty is really bad, right? I mean, and so we have no idea as an industry where this guy stands, where the administration stands, what kind of policies, and they want us to go drill a $10 million well that'll take five to seven years to get our money back as well as generate some sort of return. And they want us to trust them that they're not gonna put in a windfall profits tax that they're not going to take our leases away, et cetera, put in new environmental regulations. So it's just been really tough for the industry to generate any kind of activity. Well, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, regulatory uncertainty is is a huge problem, and not just in the oil and natural gas industry, of course, but but certainly there. And you touched on something, and, and I brought it up when I was talking with Sarah about this too, which is that when you listen to the rhetoric that's coming from the Biden administration, and by the way, I would I would also say that you've characterized the past politics pretty fairly, I'd say. So, yeah, I, I I'm I'm very I, I'm very much in tune with your with your definitions on that. So, um, but when you listen to the, the the people in the administration talk, they talk as though uh, the oil and natural gas industry is some sort of monolithic organization that has, you know hundreds of billions of dollars of capital at its fingertips. And that is not the industry. The industry is a number of much smaller organizations that don't have that type of capital. Your point, especially after after the um, the crash that took place, that most of the capital evaporated anyway, and doesn't have a lot of prospects for getting investors to come in. And so when you hear about, well, they made billions of dollars of profit, um, they, it also ignores the fact that they spent billions of dollars to get that billions of dollars, which, you know, the, the margins in this industry are not large. They're much smaller than, say, the computer industry, the telecommunications industry. This is a narrow margin business. 
So when you don't have that, when you don't have that capital for investment, you simply aren't going to get drilling, even if the regulatory um, environment was stable, which as you point out, it's not. No, I, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, if you look at it and you kind of and you kind of frame it up, it's really external capital versus internal capital is the way to think about it. And I'm going to make a statement here that's an overgeneralization, but I think it bears saying is if unless you have external capital, the United States cannot increase oil production. Yep. That that's just a fact. And I say this too because of the shocking lack of education about the energy business out there. One of the key defining characteristics of an oil well is it's a depleting asset. It produces less today than it produced yesterday. Tomorrow it's going to produce less than it produced today. And so if you want to grow production in the United States, you have to replace the production that you produce today as well as add to it. And the only way to add to it is to drill horizontally and to frack a well. And it's ridiculous. I saw a, a representative member of the House say the other day, you know, these companies could just turn on more gasoline and not have to do that drilling and fracking stuff to get it. And I was right. we. We, uh, we jokingly end the one of my podcasts, the BDE show, with the finger of the week each week. And we were, toying, we were toying, do we give her the finger of the week or do we name her the geologist of all time? Because she has found gasoline without having to drill or frack. It's pretty amazing. You just have to, you just have to turn on the tap. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's... Just it's what did Ross Perot say uh, about Arkansas when he was running against Clinton? You know, Arkansas is just a little state. You grab it by the ears and you just fix it. I think that's what people think oil and gas companies do to create yeah. more production. You know, and it's it's already a business with inherent risk. And I remember um, sitting down with um, some uh, folks from one of the industry's councils. I forget which one it was. And they were, we were it was regarding offshore drilling. I remember it being about offshore drilling because the costs were a lot higher, right? It was something like $80 million to sink a well, and you'd have to drill three to get to one that actually produces. So by the time you get done with, um, you know, with getting one producing well, you've already spent a quarter of a billion dollars just up front. And that type of, that type of investment requires a huge amount of capital. And that was an improvement... <clears throat> As they were telling me, that was an improvement over years past, where because the geology is improved and they're able to they're able to uh, do better at at targeting, um, where it might have taken you know 10, 10 wells to get to one that really produces uh, to to a profitable level and, and and it stays steady. So, you know, we're talking about on land, you're sinking ten million dollars into that. I mean, it's less expensive than going offshore, but. Um, you're you're still sinking a lot of money into that, and my guess is that you're probably at the same ratio, right? Maybe two wells, three wells, four wells before you get to one that that really is productive. Well, I think what's interesting, what happened during the shale revolution, is we basically shale is a formation that's very tight, and to for an oil well to produce, you need two things: porosity and permeability. Porosity is the space in between a rock where the oil stored. So think like marbles in a jar, you know how you can yep. put water in there? That's porosity, right? Permeability is the ability of the oil to flow through the sand. And so if you think about the beach and you, a wave comes up and you know how the water kind of runs through the sand, that's very permeable, fine sand. That makes a great producing well. And we have a lot of sand like that in the United States that holds oil the only problem is we produced that back in the early 1900s, and that's why we won World War II and World War II, uh, World War II because of our oil production from those very permeable sands. So the stuff today that we can get oil out of the shale is tight. Think like the sidewalk. So you literally have to go rubbleize it to be able to get the oil out. And quite frankly, what we've done over the last, call it 10 to 12 years, is we have hit all of the shales in the United States with a really big hammer. And we've defined where we can drill and get oil and where we can't. And we have a lot f 
fewer places where we can drill and get oil than people realize. And so when you look at the price of oil today, it's $100 a barrel. But when you go out to late 2025 on the futures curve, the price of oil is call it $72, $73 a barrel. We're in for a rude awakening if we really think in three or four years we're going to be able to buy a barrel of oil for $72 or $73. It's going to be a lot higher. And why I bring this up is if we don't have proactive regulations today to encourage more drilling, we're going to be in a lot of trouble in three or four years because this you just can't turn this on overnight. We've right. got to get employees you know, that when oil hit minus 37, I'm the poster boy for it. We fired a lot of employees in this uh, in this industry. And guess what? They don't want to come back. Right. <laughs> right. If they get a job doing construction in Tampa, why go out to West Texas? No offense to my friends in Midland, Texas, but <laughs> why do it? We can't get steel. We need tubulars. We need equipment to be able to do it. And so that's why it really bothers me when Biden comes into your office and he cancels the Keystone pipeline and everybody on the left makes the case of, well, we don't really need it. The Canadian oil can get here uh, via railway. Thank you, Warren Buffett. But at the end of the day, it's like, OK, that's great. In six or seven years when we need that oil, guess what? We're going to be saying we wish we would have built that pipeline. And I think I think that's the biggest thing that the Biden administration is missing is these take long lead times and you got to think in five and 10 and 15 year blocks, not just 20 second blocks and, oh, we'll just release some oil from the strategic petroleum reserve and everything will be better. I mean, the SPR thing, this is a whole series of gimmicks, you know, and um, the SPR release is another gimmick. And at some point, you're going to have to refill that because it's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for a reason. It's there in case of an emergency where you can't get production, but you have a critical national security need. So eventually, we're going to have to buy oil to replace that. Um, it's They're trying to bet that the oil is going to be cheaper down the road, but they're not implementing policies to to get to that um, cheaper production. So, so Chuck, I'm going to ask you, um, what policies... Just broadly, I, I, obviously, yeah. you're not going to write statutes here, but I mean, what policies need to take place right now so that we can prepare for uh, the ability to have scalable, dynamic um, domestic production to deal with um, the shortages uh, that are going to happen in the future? So it's interesting you bring that up because literally this morning for Chuck Yates needs a job, we actually, I had eight very seasoned, intelligent, energy professionals on and we did the energy policy draft and wow. it was a mix it was a mix of humor serious talk and we went through various things the premise was if your energies are what do you do and uh, some things that came out of it i'll get i'll give you some specifics and then i'll give you a big picture one okay. specifics the first thing i would do is i would build a natural gas pipeline from West Virginia and Pennsylvania, where you have all the Marcellus shale gas. Let's run that to Boston, Massachusetts. Did you know we are importing 50 BCF of, nat of liquid natural gas to service New England every year, kind of as we speak? No. And we, ha we have it all right. I mean, how far is that? I'm from Texas, so everything seems like a seven iron and a pitching wedge away but I mean, we could literally we could literally run natural gas from the marcellus which is kind of right there as i said pennsylvania and west virginia up into massachusetts uh senator warren would no longer have to import lng some of that lng actually came from russia believe it or not and what that would do is immediately we get most of that lng liquid natural gas, we get it from Trinidad, we could send that to Europe right now, 50 BCF a year, that would be great, because that would at least alleviate a little bit of the dependency on Russia. So that is right. that is number one. Number two, let's get rid of the Jones Act. The Jones Act, to oversimplify, basically says, from domestic to domestic ports, you can only use a certain size ship, Let's let big ships go so that we can take oil and liquefied natural gas from Houston, Texas over to California. 
and let's stop importing it from Russia. Right. So th those are kind of two specifics. I'll get a little more broad. Let's recognize that natural gas is a cleaner source of fuel, certainly more so than coal. So let's build infrastructure around that to service our needs. Um, we were joking the other day on the podcast. Uh, we said, you know, it's too bad nuclear energy wasn't invented yesterday because then we'd go, oh, we solved our problems right here. I was going to ask you if you guys discussed nuclear energy. I mean, it was literally the question that was running through my head when, when you brought this up. Yes. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So nuclear energy doesn't pollute. I mean, you have radioactivity that you can just pump into the middle of the of the ground and, and store. But it's great. It can be base load, meaning it can run consistently. It's not intermittent. If the sun doesn't shine, solar doesn't work. Right. So it can provide base load power, which I think is really important. It's environmentally friendly. And what's and it's interesting, scalable. I think and it's scalable, too. It's very scalable, very yeah. scalable. And I think Joe Rogan put it best. When we think of all the problems we have, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, all these nuclear catastrophes. Yeah, Fukushima we had, too, yeah. Exactly. When were all those plants built? In the 70s, right? Right. right. And 60s and Joe, 70s, yeah. And Joe Rogan's point is always, have you driven an American car from the 70s? They really sucked. So let's not <laughs> hold it against nuclear that we just sucked at building things back in the <laughs> 70s. That's not nuclear's fault. So those are kind of the, the big picture um, thing, or the, the more specific things I'd say to have a good energy policy. But seriously, the biggest one we can do, and this is really important. I know I've been kidding around on here, but people die when energy prices are high. People die when we have to buy energy from authoritarian dictators. They just do. It's right. really serious. Let's drop the hyperbole. We just need to drop it and have a serious intellectual discussion on what we want to do because the environmentalist side is they need higher prices to drop demand down because they believe that demand is poisoning the planet. And that's, I, I don't know that the science is settled on it, but at least in my mind, that is, you believe that, that's great. Let's have that discussion. Let's quit throwing hyperbole back and forth at each other and have a thoughtful discussion. Because if we are going to move to a decarbonized world, we need to do it with by spending the fewest dollars we can to get to that point. Because we can very easily go out and spend trillions of dollars trying to get to that point, totally miss the mark, and still face the catastrophe the environmentalists think we're going to have and all be broke. So right. if I had if I had one thing I could do as energy czar, I'd say, okay, everybody, drop the bullshit. Let's sit down and talk honestly about it and see if we can't find compromise to get there because this is really serious stuff. I, I, I agree with you on that. And I, I would say, look, I mean, I think we have to understand that demand's only going to increase because there's more people on the planet. There's going to be more need for energy. Even if you're finding ways to save energy, there's still going to be more need for energy. If you want to have dynamic economies that will create the innovation and the expansion of alternative energy sources, you're going to need to have that energy now. So let's decide let's expand nuclear energy because it's scalable and it's carbon free and make it safe but you know expand it greatly as a way to transition but the way that you do that is in the meantime we still need to drill we still need to um, use natural gas and oil and coal in order to power the economies that will allow for that transition to happen without having people die because we're we're being held hostage to authoritarian regimes for our energy needs and i could get behind a, a program like that if we were saying look we're going to get out of we're going to stop using oil and natural oil anyway because oil and coal let's say we're going to stop using oil and coal in 30 years and the way we're going to do that is we're really going to drill and 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 use up what we can in order to generate the economies that are going to allow us to put nuclear power plants for our scalable electrical needs as we're transitioning our vehicles to the electrical grid and we're going to try to use solar and, and, and wind power where we can and make it as efficient as possible while we're doing that now that to me sounds like a pretty damn good plan and at least a strategy that has a coherent target in mind and one that doesn't say we're going to live in the stone age 
for a while until all of this stuff uh, magically transforms into a, you know, in, into a reliable platform because you, that's simply not, never going to happen. You need a robust economy to, to create those reliable platforms. You, you embedded two things in there that I think are really important. One, to date, not going forward, but to date, there's no such thing as transition. We've just wanted more. Right. So all the solar, all the wind has been taking care of more energy demand. I think 25 years ago, we got 79.8% of our power generation from hydrocarbons in one way, shape or form. Today, it's 80.1. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we have not had a transition. We've only had more and we need to recognize that. And then the second thing we have to do is we have to look at the moral case for denying somebody energy. If you want to go down the path of we're not going to generate more, that's great. But your life expectancy doubles when you go from burning dung and wood to burning hydrocarbons. And we have to appreciate that. There's been a lot of good stuff done because of hydrocarbons. And again, that needs to be part of the discussion. What you just said, let's all sit around the table and talk about it, be thoughtful, be intellectually honest, because we got to get this right. I mean, humanity literally, I hate to be dramatic, but hangs in the balance of this. And not because we're going to, not because I think we're going to destroy the planet with hydrocarbons, but because, I mean, 200 million people are going to starve this summer because we don't have the, uh, the fertilizer to grow enough crops. Right. I mean, yeah. is that hyperbole? No, it's probably not. So we really need to be thoughtful about this and we got to get this one right. Well, Chuck Yates, he needs a job, but he sounds like he's doing a pretty good <laughs> sounds like he's doing a pretty good job. Chuck sounds like you're doing a great job right now just doing what you're doing. Remind everybody how to find you again and uh, and uh, when's your next podcast coming up? You were just talking so, about today, right? So, any place you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, it's Chuck Yates needs a job. The other pod and that's think a long format Joe Rogan where I'll have various guests on. We talk a lot of serious energy. We talk actually a lot of mental health. For some reason, the podcast got really serious. I've had my priest on. We've talked about all the therapy I've gone through. And then we just do some dumb shit, silly stuff too. So we, <laughs> we do that. The BDE show is the weekly summary of uh, for the oil and gas or for the energy business. And uh, all of that's published by Digital Wildcatters. I'm Nimble Fatty on Twitter. That's where I spend most of my uh, most of my time embarrassing myself. And I appreciate you having me on. Well, Chuck, I appreciate you coming on because this was a great conversation. And I hope that we just can just keep in touch here and uh, touch base every once in a while and uh, update each other on on energy and more. Lots of different things. I, you know, we could talk yeah, about love we to talk about we can talk about priests. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Love to have you on. Chuck Yates needs a job at oh, some point in the near future. I'd love to do it. Yeah. Let's let's stay in touch. I'd love to come on your podcast. That'd be great. Sounds good. Thanks, Ed. All right. Chuck Yates needs a job. Check it out. I will be back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me now is uh, really one of the one of the uh, one of my great friends in the industry, a man who is perpetually out to get my job, still hasn't succeeded at it yet, though. Dustin Sig is actually <laughs> Dustin. I, I have you. Uh, you are still my nemesis, but uh, I have I've been able to foil you for all these years, man. <laughs> every every year, Facebook reminds me of things I posted back in my unwise earlier years, and some of them are when Twitter linked to my Facebook page. And I've shown these these Facebook messages you and I exchanged on the time that after CPAC, you said one year, your favorite, your biggest accomplishment that year was not losing your job to me. It was like in 2014 or so. Well, and my wife just shakes her head and she goes, what is wrong with you guys? <laughs> so much. So much. <laughs> hey, do you want it alphabetically, uh, you know? <laughs> Chronologically or in order of importance, I think I, I mean I, we, we could be here all day. We've only got about twenty minutes to do to talk about what we want to talk about. So yeah, exactly. We will we will answer your wife's question another time, Dustin. But yeah, Dustin, we of course, die, we die and go to heaven, and God who knows better than us. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, Happy Easter to you. I should Happy uh, Easter. Yes, uh, I uh, congratulations on your first year. You said singing. 
Uh... Yeah, this is, well, this is the first year that I've uh, I sung the triduum, right? Um, oh, okay. I haven't been in a choir in about 20 years, and I started singing again um, uh, just before Christmas. And uh, new parish, new town, you know, and all this kind of fun oh, stuff. Sure, and yeah. and um, I'm really enjoying it. So I got a chance to sing the Easter triduum, and in which I raised the question, is it possible to do a, uh, a mass where you're singing both Mozart and Salieri? And, and not sort of cross the streams, right? So, you know, apparently not. Apparently we're fine. Um, apparently we were fine. But my, I don't my know. Knowledge, my knowledge of singing is about as good as my success in taking your job, just as a frame of reference. There you go. Okay. I, I was, so. that's, sort of a, that's sort of an Amadeus joke. Um, oh, okay. So I don't know you, what Amadeus is. So you're still <gasps> going way over my head here. <laughs> oh my gosh. How can you expect to take my job if you don't even know what Amadeus is, man? Come on. Google me. I'm a millennial. Just Google solves everything. <laughs> all right well we're not here to discuss movies although amadeus is really an excellent movie um we're here to talk about uh corporations kowtowing to china we're here to talk about um uh we're here to talk about uh corporations uh talk you know taking aim at um uh, taking aim at american politicians while covering for uh bad foreign actors and of course, Dustin's here. He's from provenmediasolutions.net. That's the company he founded when he realized that he could no longer take my job. Uh, and he's doing great with it. So it was a good choice on Dustin's part. Provenmediasolutions.net. And I mean, this came up because I was pointing out the massive hypocrisy in um, Warner Brothers' excision of some dialogue from... Uh, uh, it's a new movie. It's a new Harry Potter movie. It's the Secrets of Dumbledore. I think is what the um, is what the title of it is, and um, and this is aimed at adults. This is part of the Fantastic Beasts, um, right. the, the expansion series, right? And the expansion series, and um, apparently one of the secrets of Dumbledore can't be told in China, which is that Dumbledore is gay. Now, right, that the character was written that way. J.K. Rowling is, you know, it's or she. At least she claims that the character was organically written that way. Of course, in children's novels, it's not really a big issue. But in the in the more adult-oriented uh, Fantastic Beasts series, uh, she makes that uh, more of a uh, explicit in the character. Um, and China didn't like that. So at the same time that um, Hollywood in general, although I'm not sure if Warner Brothers in particular was part of this, uh, sure. was castigating Florida over its supposedly don't say gay bill, the parental rights and education bill, uh, you have um, Warner Brothers explicitly uh, making sure that they don't say gay in China, and somehow that's okay, Dustin. And what I pointed out in the couple of pieces I sent you that I've recently written for Rookler World and, and uh, Inside Sources is that <clears throat> it's easy for us here to say, look at the hypocrisy. Right, and yeah. consumers do this every day. The company does this, company does that, doesn't do this, doesn't do that. My premise, you know, again, from a media and branding perspective, is that China has spent 40 years with growing its influence so that you can't say no to it. Or the, the NBA loses a $1.5 billion contract and they don't air your, your games and they will not air your, you know, allow your movies to be shown to their $1.2 billion uh, person consumer audience in China. So companies are trying to navigate this. And what's clear is that consumers don't really care. Right. The same pro-lifers who say that we should protect the unborn are willing to ignore the one slash two child policy in China and buy sneakers. Or the same liberals who you know, are so offended if, if, if a Muslim gets yelled at on the street will not take a stance against China because they can buy iPhones for cheap, even though China's uh, committing genocide against Muslim minorities and mocking the world by doing it by one of those Muslim minorities, lightly with a torch. So, but Yeah, I mean, in one sense, China is probably too big to ignore, right? It's probably too big to boycott. And in large part, because we've allowed this thing to just sort of passively, the the relationship with uh, China has sort of passively expand over the last 30 years, I'd say. You know, the most favored nation status, I think, was 2002. But even before that, you know, trade had really been expanding in China. 
the most favored nation thing, which has now been, I mean, it's not called that any longer, but it's still the same type of idea. We just stripped that status from Russia, for instance, over its invasion of Ukraine. But it's a hell of a lot easier to do that with Russia because we don't have as many things sourced out of Russia. We do have some things sourced, which are, it's going to complicate um, inflation issues and some supply chain issues, including food, which doesn't really come Actually, here, but com goes elsewhere. And nickel mining, interestingly. Well, nickel mining, yeah, some of the stuff that is necessary for um, uh, for some of the green energy technology um, that is a priority for this administration does come out of Ukraine and, and Russia as well, both countries. Well, uh, Russia actually has 10% of the world's high-level ne uh, nickel and 20% yep. of the top-level nickel, which but while we, it gets a lot of press talking about the, the batteries, or the, the electric power batteries, it's actually mostly used in sheet metal, which is in right. everything and so to, but to your point we don't source as much from china but uh, from russia but in china most of battery production most of processing of nickel and copper and the other minerals is done in china the stuff is made there sneakers iphones and everything else and so right. they have made themselves indispensable i read a piece written by an economist i think a former fed advisor wrote a piece on how in the 70s china's economic power was fairly minimal it was relative to third world countries and then they just started exploding and we've, as you say we've let them have all this power passively and now they're the equivalent of a, of a major corporation essentially they can yeah I, I mean i want to be careful about using the word passively there, there was an active policy of engagement of economic engagement with china that that True. is bipartisan and the idea behind it, I and mean, this is in the Bill Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, uh, to some extent, the Ronald Reagan administration and the George H.W. Bush administration, because they saw China as a counterweight against the Soviet Union. But even in the post-Soviet era, the idea was that that type of engagement would um, modernize China, right? Would, would, right. Would, would push China towards more democratic, more open um, governance. And, right. It simply hasn't worked out. I mean, arguably, it's entrenched the the hardliners uh, under Xi Jinping now, and um, so it wasn't passive. But I think what I mean by passive is that we've been neglectful about keeping an eye on how much of our supply chain comes from China, specifically China, and then to a lesser extent to regimes that are probably uh, not entirely. Um, savory or not entirely friendly. Uh, sure. and, and, we're, and we're paying for that now. I mean, this is part of the issue when you're talking about corporations. And by the way, Dustin's got some great um, stuff up at insidesources.com, um, which is Michael Graham's site, right? Michael Graham is a yeah. guy, behind, a terrific guy. Michael Graham is a lot of fun. And also at realclearworld.com, uh, where he's written about uh, China and, and their political influence and corporate influence. Um, but I mean, we haven't been paying attention to that until really it got to be too late. And really until COVID, I think, really crystallized just how much of the supply chain, American supply chain, comes out of China and uh, what kind of position that puts us in. Well, and, and I agree with your your clarification on passive. That's also the context in which I meant because right. when Russia invades Ukraine and everybody takes them down economically and otherwise, right? everyone's responding. China, how many people have been killed from COVID across the world? How many times have they lied to the WHO accusing the U.S. of starting COVID? How often have they just completely you know, done the things that if other countries were doing this, other major countries were doing this, we would have crackdowns on them. We would have boycotts. We would have all of these things. It's economically and politically and culturally safe to pull your, your business from Russia. You know, companies are losing billions of dollars to pull from Russia. They're still doing it, even though China, I would say that China is economically more powerful, militarily more of a threat in the long run, and yet they have made themselves indispensable, as we saw with the Olympics. You know, the, the 1980 boycott saw something like 64 countries commit a boycott against Russia the invasion of Afghanistan. Well, 40 years later, you know, China didn't invade anybody, but they sure invaded the world with their COVID and then lied about it. And you know, with, with their uh, actions against Muslim minorities, I think there was like eight countries that committed a very minor diplomatic boycott. I, 
And I will say this about about that is that I think that the I think history shows that that 1980 boycott was really a waste of time. I mean, I think it was sure, really just, it was a it was a and I think if it hadn't been that that had already been done and shown to be completely ineffective, it might have gotten more traction this time around. The idea of it might have gotten more traction, but I think everybody looked at 1980 and said it didn't accomplish it, anything. It didn't do anything any good. In fact, yeah. Russia then boycotted a few years later. Um, but my overall point, the, the pieces I wrote, the reason you know, I wanted to talk with you about this, Ed, is you have a lot greater knowledge of the history of this thing. I, I forgot about the most favorite nation part, for example. But from a purely from a media and branding perspective, the fact is consumers get angry at corporations, but it's the consumer's fault. We're the ones who aren't pushing politicians to have better tax policies so companies feel more comfortable coming here for financial reasons. We're the ones who are not way more drilling and other energy opportunities here. So production and creation. Charles Krauthammer had an amazing 2008 column in his Washington Post column about how these politicians want to go overseas and you know they want to fly and ship and, and, and oil pipeline all this stuff to the United States from Nigeria, which is you know five BP level oil spills a year. So I've heard in that country. It's very one of the most corrupt governments in the world. Rather than doing it here where it's safer more regulated, more controlled, and without the travel as well. It's environmentally more friendly. But it looks good to not have it done here. And that gives countries like China, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, and Venezuela more power. Well, yes. And I've kind of, since we, you know, we're decided we're going to do this, I was, I've been kind of mulling over, you know, what would have happened um, had South Africa had the Olympics in the early 1980s or the late 1970s, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I remember it's this, and again, this this reaches back pretty far. I was, you know, around and politically aware during sure. the end apartheid uh, mm -hmm. movement where, you know, Don't Play Sun City was a big deal, where you had rock bands that were castigated and, um, and you know, sort of not quite canceled. It wasn't quite the same thing, but shunned. For doing for for making appearances in South Africa during the apartheid era, it was a really this sort of grassroots, sort of semi-grassroots movement that um, attacked South Africa for its apartheid status. And finally, you know, uh, you know, government started getting in in, in, in the uh, in the action, and finally, you know, apartheid collapsed in in South Africa. Nelson Mandela was freed from prison. He became president, and I mean, South Africa has its troubles, but it doesn't have apartheid. And right. one of the reasons why I think that the work with South Africa, and nobody's actually even making the equation here with the genocide of the Uyghurs, is that South Africa really wasn't that <laughs> significant in terms of other people's economies. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not, I mean, I, I'm not seeing movements like, we talk about, you know, um, the BDS movement for Israel, right? The, sure. You know, right. the which, you know, the divestment, you know, this activist divestment movement over what they claim is apartheid, which is nonsense. Um, but you're not seeing anything like that. You're not seeing, you're not seeing this sort of grassroots progressive activism against China, which is really committing genocide on an ongoing basis, has been for years, and we all know about well, it. And, they, and they're not, like, not, not only do we not all know about it, they're just, they're pointing it out. They're, they're putting it in front of us with the, the Uyghur. How do you pronounce the, the Muslim minority? How do you pronounce Uyghur? It? Uyghur, thank you. Yeah. The Uyghur uh, person who, who lit the Olympic torch. You know, everyone knows that they're lying. They're just, they're doing it. They're just putting their message out. And we allow, we the world, allow them to have a major coup this year, PR coup, by having the Olympics. Yep. Yes, you can commit genocide and you can pressure, crack out Hong Kong and threaten Taiwan, commit a worldwide pandemic and we will not hold you accountable. China can do whatever it wants to because it's, it's not, economy isn't as big as the U.S., but I would argue that it's more economic power because it's indispensable to all the things that make the rest of the world function. On little things and irrelevant things like pants and shoes, we can get them anywhere, and big things like car batteries, sheet metal, and phones. Yep. Yeah, you know, and I think what I, mean, I think we're in agreement that what's really needed is that sort of type of consumer movement that that doesn't just say we're going to boycott China goods, China made goods, which is very difficult to do. 
Right. Um, but to call out the people who run supply chains uh, that are based in China, right? A bit like Apple. I mean, I don't Tesla. see anybody. I don't, Tesla. Tesla. Yeah, right. Tesla. A lot of people are cheering on Elon Musk for you know his his attempted buyout of Twitter, right. which I'm entertained by. <laughs> I wonder how he would say that. Yeah. Well, I am. I'm entertained by it, right? I mean, it's kind of fun to watch him uh, be this sort of, you know, disruption factor because right. Twitter really needs it. Even Jack Dorsey now apparently thinks that right. Twitter... <laughs> I was really stunned by that. Um, but, I mean, Elon Musk has has issues in, in, in the way he does business, one, too. One of his um, big plants in China is in China. It's Austin, China, and they just built two more. They're building two more, but... His two big plants are in Austin, Texas, uh, and, or and then they just opened one in they just opened one in Austin and one in Germany, and they're I think their biggest one might be in China. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's and in China. So, and so, like you say, it's going to require shaming companies, but again, it can't be done in a partisan way, and that's the key. Right. Conservatives right now are the, are the corporate shaming related to China. Liberals are corporate shaming domestic. More, they're, they're more effective. So I really wonder. How do the the minority protecting liberal, the pro-life Republican conservative? I'm frankly shocked they can't find a way to work together on this. Well, I'm not shocked by that, Dustin. I mean, I mean come on, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm maybe I'm naive here, but come on, like if we all can't band together to fight against the 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 Chinese who are just oppressing their own people and passing that oppression around the world economically with a pandemic and otherwise, I mean, come on, we all can unite against Russia invading Ukraine. Why can't yeah. the United States China? Well, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think that that's I, we should be able to do that. But I'm just saying I'm going to I'm going to award you the Captain Louis Renault Award for being shocked, shocked to find partisanship in the, I know, in the I casino. Know. Man. There's a part of me that like I'm 36. I've been in I was in politics for 10 years plus college years, and there's a part of me that always hopes you can actually like accomplish something real. Yeah, I, I guess I'm wrong. But, <laughs> I don't think you're wrong either. No, no, no. I mean, I'm... but but seriously, like, there have been so. It bothers me. Like on a moral level, yes, I'm Catholic. It bothers me on a political level. Yep. I care about politics, doing the right thing, but just professionally, like it bothers me that every single op-ed page, news person, media commentator, blogger, isn't able to say, let's go after China. Instead, the Babylon Bee is being accused of being racist. Right. Trump was accused of being racist by saying we're going to ban from China, but when Biden did it, it wasn't racist. Can't we all just look at China and say, you're a bad guy. And we're going to take steps. Even if it takes 10 years, because we have to be more careful than the Russia. Yeah, I think, just... what, I think what we need to do is look beyond our own short-term partisan, um, uh, you know, partisan talking points. Um, and that's really, did, that kind of really was what happened with South Africa in the sure. end apartheid movement is that it really did it really did engage people not on the basis of partisanship but just on the basis of values you know right. saying how, how can you you know how can how can we have gone through the civil rights movement here in the united states which everybody now agrees by you know 1979 1980 everybody agreed almost everybody agreed that was a good idea by that point in time right. it was controversial but by that time everybody it was a pretty much consensus that was civil rights movement right, was right, actually right, a pretty damn good idea right? Right, um right. how can you go through all that and then still encourage jim crow in um right. in south africa by economically engaging with it which was a good powerful argument um and i don't see people doing that and i think in large part because china has a lot of influence across the right. political spectrum here in the That's media right. it's got a ton of influence and i think when you see what happened with uh, the secrets of Dumbledore and Warner Brothers. It shows you yes. exactly why Cena. it's not happening. You see what John, Cena. John Cena. Yeah, John he Cena. Played, but what I'm saying, he's like to me, he's the, the key example of this. You know, there's a there's a really funny clip of him teaching Hugh Jackman how to smack talk, and it's really funny. From about four or five years ago, that contrasts very sharply. The Babylon Bee reported that the doctors were shocked that they had to do a spine implant implantation for uh, implantation for John Cena because his spine had been removed. Nobody knew it until he apologized in Mandarin. And so to me, okay, he's a small player, but he just encapsulates the utter hypocrisy. He's a B, you know. Yeah, well, the NBA, I mean, the NBA caving to China, you know, the whole thing with Ennis Cantor, you know. It'd be really nice. At least we don't have to go after China. Let's start with 
Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela. Let's not beg Venezuela for oil and rely on Saudi Arabia for oil. Let's just drill here and rely right. on our allies. And then we can start there. And then maybe we walk to China. Let's, let's take baby steps. Was it Bill Murray? You know, baby steps. I think and, that's uh, right. Yeah. What about Bob? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Very good. I'd forgotten about what about Bob? <clears throat> uh, what about what about Bob? No, that's too meta. Sorry, I'm gonna. Oh, jeez, man. Leave that <laughs> We're actually out of time, though. Dustin Siggins, tell us just a, give us a, a quick um, uh, a quick uh, update about your your business site, provenmediasolutions.net, and what it is sure. that you do. Sure. Proven Media Solutions. Our mission is to get your message past the media noise of the 24-hour news cycle and into the media outlets that matter to reach your target. And we do that primarily through op-eds, press releases, getting the interviews. And we also, um, we really try to point out how media matters and you can always get into it, even if you know you live in a cycle of partisanship. Well, there you go. ProvenMediaSolutions.net is where you can find that. Dustin Siggins is the proprietor. He is, and you need to go there because otherwise he's gonna come after my job again. <laughs> And at this point, I think I just wait a few years and you'll probably retire. Kind of slide right in. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a conflict that might resolve itself. I think Dustin hey, could be exactly. correct about this. Yeah, exactly. At least given the, the, the differences in our, our level of hair and color, of hair. I can make that assumption. Wow, wow this this turned dark all of a sudden at the end of this interview. All right, proven media uh, hey, solutions. It turned kind of white for you, kind of glare, glaring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> proven media solutions. Keep. Keep Dustin employed. Keep him off my back. Oh, <laughs> hey, take care our, of yourself, man. All right, happy, you do the happy same. Easter. Happy Easter, Dustin. And stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thanks for watching the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you like what you've seen, be sure to subscribe at the channels that you watched on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We love subscribers. More importantly, it lets everybody know that we're out there. So again, thank you for watching. Be sure to subscribe.